So what comes to mind when you think of love? It's complex, simple. If you ask 100 people, you're going to get 100 different answers. The world around us has plenty of opinions on what love is and what love should be and how we should define love. I would argue in our culture, it is probably our supreme social ethic, meaning that is the thing that everyone appeals to. Why can't we just love one another? Why can't you just love these people? Why can't you just love? And when you disagree with someone, you're being unloving. When you don't affirm what someone else does, you're not being loving to them. And when you exalt something like love, you better define what it is. And as believers, when we talk about love, we better have a clear definition of what love is. Our culture is obsessed with love. Marketing, uh, especially to women, there are hearts everywhere. Victoria's Secret has made like a whole like industry out of love. Hallmark only exists because we've made love into simply a feeling that needs a card for every occasion. And many times in our culture, we're like fickle teenage girls. Say, he loves me, he loves me not. I love this, I love this, this is the best thing ever. I didn't just make that up. I spoke to a woman this week who said the most terrifying place in the world is the mind of a teenage girl. And I'm quoting verbatim from that. But, you know, as a culture, we talk about things that we love. We love food, we love, we love sports, I love this thing, I love this thing, and we fall in and out of love so easily. And we say the word love all the time with things that we don't really love. Oh, I'd love to come over for dinner. Would you? I'd love to watch your kids or your dog. Would you? The real question for believers is where do we get our definition of love? What is our example? Because love is one of those things that can either be a noun or a verb. And in its noun form, it is a thing. But love is also a verb. It's it's an action. And that action, what comes out of that love depends on what the definition of that noun is. What is the thing that you are acting upon? Because love is a thing that it must be proven by its action. And so these two go together. You can't just say love without having some sort of action attached to it. Many of you remember the 80s. There was a whole uh, genre called soft rock. Anyone under 30 has no idea what that is. But there was a song I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. It ties these things together. And no, it's not the sermon. But there is a sense in which if you want to know what love is, you have to be shown what that love is. I found this quote by a guy named Paulo Coelho. Don't look him up. He's a hippie humanist pluralist. But a broken clock is also right twice a day. He also said that, that all religions lead to the same light. We're going to see that later, that that's absolutely not true. But he said something that's interesting. He said, love is just a word until someone comes along and gives it meaning. I think that is very appropriate for our text this morning, that love is just a word until someone comes along and gives it meaning. Because people love to say that God is love. When they want to create a God in their own image, they say God is love. What does that mean? What does it mean? How do we know that God is love? How is it proved? The scriptures have a lot to say about that. I think sometimes uh, wisdom comes in the form of words from a child. A young girl who goes to her mother says, Mommy, do you love me? Of course I love you. So she goes back and she thinks for a while and 
She says, um, Mommy, do you know how many hairs are on my head? She says, no, I don't. She says, well, God knows how many hairs on my head. God loves me more than you do. <laughs> yes, she does, honey. Uh, the God who knows the hairs on your head loves you in a way that you cannot imagine. Let's open up to John chapter 3. So as always, context matters. So even though we're beginning our sermon in verse 16, we're actually going to start reading in verse 11. And because we're going to talk about this verse, John three sixteen, this morning that almost everyone knows. I mean, even if you've never stepped in, inside a church, you've seen a sign at a game or you've seen it painted under Tim Tebow's eyes. You have seen this verse somewhere. But very often, this is the beginning and the end of someone's Bible. They don't read before and they don't read after. And so this is very contingent on what we talked about last week. And so we're going to start in verse 11 of chapter 3 and spend our time on verses 16 through 21. So this is Jesus still speaking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus coming to Jesus in the middle of the night, and Jesus tells him what it means to be born again. So this is how Jesus closes his teaching to Nicodemus. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes into the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. As we have sung this morning, this is your world. You reigned over all things when there was nothing. And you created all things for your glory and you still reign supreme. You reign in the rising and the setting of the sun. You reign in the showers and the thunderstorms. You reign in the trials of life. And you reign for all things. And you reigned when you created us. And you reigned when you sent your son down to give up his life for us. The one who descended from heaven is also the one who ascended. So that he would be a sacrifice for our sin that our eyes would be open and our ears would be able to hear the truth of heavenly things. And Lord, I just pray this morning that we will feel burdened by the weight of your love on us and that we will come to a deeper understanding and reverence for the heavenly things that have been opened before our eyes and that we will be comforted by your love for us, that we will be convicted 
of this message that, that the world needs to hear. The only good news, the only love that is worth sharing. It's the love that came from a father to his children. That we love because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so this is a passage that is very simple. No big words, no complex theological issues that we need to address, but it is very deep and it is very precise because here John is going into an explanation of human nature, the effects of sin, and the nature of God's eternal plan of redemption. This is big stuff put into small words in a small package. And so it would be to your disadvantage if I did not tie last week into this week. Because as I've said so many times, you can't just read scriptures with the chapter and section designations. Many times we read and we stop at a chapter and we read until a section and we stop at, at a section. And this is really continuing on from last week. This is an explanation of what we went over last week. So last week, we've got this religious man who comes before Jesus who is, who is pious by all accounts, who's, who's rich. As far as the world is concerned, he's got it going on. He's got everything he needs to. He's one of the leaders of the people of God. But he comes in the middle of the night to Jesus. He says, I know you've come from God. I know you've got something to tell me. Jesus says, yes, you must be born again. You must be born of the spirit. Flesh is flesh and spirit is spirit. You need to be born of the spirit to understand heavenly things. Nicodemus question is a legitimate question that many of us uh, have had. Like, How could these things be true? How could this, this spiritual realm exist when I can't understand it, when I can't see it? And Jesus' response to him is, how can I teach you heavenly things when you can't even understand plain earthly things that I've laid out before you? And then Jesus goes into this kind of shrouded explanation of his humiliation, his sacrifice on the cross. And at the end of this section, he says, that no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So already he's setting himself apart. There's none like him. He is telling you where he came from and where he will go. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And as we talked about last week, this picture of the serpent is a curse, is sin, is a reminder that you are responsible The people of Israel were were responsible for turning against God. And so the curse that was put up on the tree is connected to the curse that was put up on the pole. Our Savior became a curse for us. He was lifted up as the serpent must be lifted up. And all who look on him in faith will be healed. They will be saved. Verse 15 is the climax of this passage. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So how do we know what it means to be born again? How do we know Nicodemus' question, how can these things be? Now we find ourselves in verses 16 through 21, which is an explanation in a commentary of what happened before. Anytime a passage starts with four, there's a causal relationship that's going on. Something was said before, now we're about to prove it here. And it's going to happen a couple times here in this, this passage. This is support for what happened before. Remember, verse 15 says that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What does that mean? Help us understand that, John. Help us understand human nature. What's going on here? How can I have eternal life? Because that is the question that everyone must ask. How must I be saved? 
How can I be reconciled, a sinful human being, with a perfect and righteous God? And so the explanation here is lovely and amazing. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Most of us can say that in our sleep. But how often do we meditate on the love of God? How often does the love of God bring us to our knees? How often does the love of God humble us? How often does the love of God bring us to tears? How often does the love of God overwhelm us? We know we don't deserve God's love. We know that we deserve to perish. If we meditate on God's love, the weight of it should be overwhelming. And it should turn into rejoicing. It should turn into praise and song and singing and prayers to our God. We gather because our God so loved the world that he sent his son for us. John loved the love of God. This word in the Greek, agapao, John uses it more than any other gospel, more than twice the use in any other gospel. And it continues in, in 1 John in his first letter. It's this deep relational love as contrasted to um, phileo, the Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. There's that kind of love, and then there's this, this deeper relational love that John is talking about. If you see in your outline, there are eight things we're going to draw out of the love of God. Yes, eight of them. From this verse, because this is so uh, simple, yet so complete in its, in its understanding. What is the love of God? For God so loved the world. This word in the tense, it helps us to understand that God's love is pre-existent. It was established in the past and there is nothing that has changed it from then until now. We know that God loved us and knew us before the foundation of the world. So God's love is everlasting. So what is the love of God? Number one, we have to recognize about the love of God is its author. Remember earlier we said we know what love is by its definition. And it is defined by God himself. He is the author of love. Love is a quality that is intrinsic to him, inside of him. So he determines its meaning. Not our feelings, not what's going on in the rest of the world, not what Hollywood tells us or what marketing tells us, but how God shows love, how God is an example of love should be where our definition comes from. So we can't understand love without its author. We can't understand love without God. We can't understand God's love without its character. Number two, the character of God's love was so intense God so loved the world, not just kind of loved, not just like we say that we kind of love someone until they disappoint us. God so loved the world from everlasting to everlasting. It is great. There's no falling in and out of the love of God. He so loved the world. Now we get to its object. and Here's where it gets a little trickier. Number three, the object of God's love is the world, his very creation. He didn't just make it on a whim. It was intentional. It was orderly. It was for a purpose. The world, God's very creation, he loved it so much that he brought it into being. He loved it so much when the pinnacle of his creation sinned against him and said, you know what, God, we don't need you. He didn't wipe it off the face of the map. He loved it so much that he kept it spinning. And he kept the rains coming. And he kept the sunshine coming. He loves his creation in a way that expands to every aspect of it. 
And there is a general sense that God loves his creation. That's why he will redeem it one day. This word world is used many times throughout the New Testament. And it's used many times throughout John. And almost in every context, it is negative. The world is attached to the sin and and the curse that rejected God's love, that rejected God's plan. And so here, the world is not just referring to Israel, but every tongue, tribe, and nation that makes up this world. The world in general. As we'll see in a moment, there is a specific meaning here. The world has a negative connotation until Christ comes. And Christ gives it redeeming value. Because God's love is now applied to it through Christ. And this is not something that the Jews wanted. The Jews did not want the love of God to extend to all nations. The Jews were like Jonah. Jonah knew Nineveh. I know that if you show them your mercy, they will repent. I don't want them to repent. I want them to face judgment. And this is what the Jews wanted. They want everyone else to be destroyed. But God's plan was too big for Israel. And so he loved the world that he sent his son from every tongue, tribe, and nation. People will turn to him in faith and be saved. So we've got its author, its character, its object, and its nature. The nature of God's love is giving. For God so loved the world, he gave. This is a sacrificial love. This is a giving love. This is not a self-absorbed love. This is not a love that gives expecting something in return. This is a love that says, I will give my most treasured possession and know that you can't return anything close to its value. And I will do it anyway. God so loved the world he gave. And his only son. So the nature is a giving one. But the gift is the ultimate one. God gave his most precious, his most valuable asset. His son, the everlasting son of the everlasting father. Perfect in all of their ways throughout all eternity. But God gave this most precious gift, this unique gift. Uh, And many of you may wonder why, if you've always said he gave his only begotten son, why are these modern versions change it? One, probably because, and we won't get into all of the hermeneutics of it all, the interpretation of it all, but essentially, begotten has a lot of connotations to it, and it's probably not the the best word to describe monogenes in the Greek. It, It really is uniquely only proceeding from. It's something that is only characteristic of Christ. In English, we can't get there. And so a lot of people have taken it and distorted it to make Jesus merely a man and merely a biological product of the Father. And that's why a lot of the the translations avoid begotten anymore. So that's there is a longer explanation, but that's the short one I got. All right, so we've got its author, its character, its object, its nature, its gift. Then we got its condition. Because now here's where there's a change in the verse. He gave his only son that... Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The world loves to say God is love. That's why he saves everyone, right? Now here comes the condition. Because this is where people ruffles people's feathers a little bit. This is where your Christianity gets a little bit uncomfortable. Because we love God's unconditional love. But is it unconditional? Is God's love applied the same way to someone who says, No, Christ, I want nothing to do with you. To someone who looks at him and believes and said, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. Is God's love unconditional? Is God's love applied the same way to everyone? Because here there's a condition. 
that whoever believes. God's love is unconditional to those he applies his love to in a salvific way. Meaning, when God sends his son for you and your sins were nailed to the cross, that love will never be shaken. We're going to look at Romans 8 in a moment and give you a preview of, of next week's Bible study. But there is a condition, because if you reject the son, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Esau rejected the gift of God. Esau rejected his inheritance in the people of God. And those who reject God are under God's just, wrathful demands on their life. And God's common love that applies to all of the earth is applied particularly in the love of those we sent his son for, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This in the Greek, it's worth mentioning. It's not just believe because we've all talked to people who have believed for a moment. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. I spoke to a guy this week who said, yes, I'm saved. A drug addict, alcoholic who doesn't work and goes from place to place trying to get a few dollars so he can get drunk or high the next day. Zero evidence in his life. Yes, I believe. It's not just once, it's continually believing. If you read it in the Greek, it's literally all who are believing in him. It is an ongoing condition of believing. Not just once, but your entire life is marked by that of, of belief. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but has eternal life. We are going to get into, in the book of John, the doctrine of election many times. We're not going to do it here, but we'll see it in uh, chapter 6, chapter 10, chapter 15, chapter 17, and probably a few other places. And this makes a lot of people uncomfortable as well. But I love Charles Spurgeon's great definition from this, this verse. So how do we reconcile whosoever believes the God who elects and saves before the foundation of the earth? And he paints this, this picture. As the saints are walking into glory, the gates of the heavenly Jerusalem, on the front of it, from the human perspective, it says, whosoever believes. And so the message is clear from, from our perspective that the gospel can go out to every tongue, tribe, and nation. The gospel is pro- proclaimed whosoever believes from our perspective. We are not God. But as soon as you step into that city and you look back on the other side of the gate from God's perspective, it says, elect from the foundation of the earth. And at the same time, the gospel is good news to all nations. God knows who his people are. And those lost sheep If Christ has 99, he will go after the last one because he loves them. He knows them by name and he hears his voice. Chapter 10, we'll get there. But I want you to see the beauty of God's plan, that the gospel is good news to all nations. The gospel is is precise with a sovereign God who controls this world and knows the hearts and minds of everyone. So number seven, it's purpose. God's purpose is to save His people from perishing. Whosoever believes will not perish. This word is stronger than just perishing. It is destruction with condemnation added to it. Its purpose is so that his people will not perish. Because he loved you so much that he did not keep you in your sin. He loved you so much that he gave you a way out. Through the love of his son. And then lastly, it's benefit. The benefit of God's love is eternal life. The ultimate result, the crescendo of all of this is that eternal life belongs to those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. The name of the Son, we're going to break this down a little bit. But next time you read this verse, I want you to think, 
but all the aspects of God's love that John 3.16 tells us. And next time someone says, I love John 3.16, you know how to explain it to them. You can walk through every word and tell them the love of God and help them to understand how much God loves them. But we talk about very often here the already and not yet. This everlasting life, this benefit that comes out of the love of God is real to the believers now. The moment your heart is transformed, the moment, the moment you are born again, you are birthed by the Spirit, eternity begins for you. Our eternal citizenship is now in Christ Jesus. This is amazing because many of us can trust him in the future. And I know that you have provided for me for eternity, but I don't know if I can trust you with my finances this week. I don't know if I can trust you with my marriage. I don't know if I can trust you with my fears. In Christ, you have to know that your eternity is now that you are no more a citizen of heaven when Christ comes again as you are right now. God so loved you that he did not want you to perish, but he wanted you to have eternal life. And you have it in, your, in his son and you have it abundantly. Martin Luther called John 3.16 the gospel in miniature. In one verse, we have the gospel summarized. And what greater news is there? What greater Emotion could be stirred in us than being reminded of the love of God. So when you feel discouraged, when you feel beat up by the things of this world, John 3.16, which you should be able to spit off in a second, should remind you that God so loved the world. It's in his only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, have eternal life. And then say, that's me. God so loved me that he sent his son for me that I might have eternal life. And if he loves me that much, he must know what I'm going through. He must know what I'm struggling with. He must have a plan in this. And the same God who from the foundation of the earth knew what was going to happen, knew that this was just how things were supposed to go. I think he knows what's going on in your life. I think he knows what's best for you. And this verse should give us such an encouragement. And if we need some reminders, I want us to turn to the book of Romans. Part of the reason why we're going through the book of Romans is because it is so essential to the Christian faith. It is so essential to understanding the nature of man and God's plan of redemption. One of our favorite verses that we've come back to so many times, Romans 5.8. If you want to memorize another verse, here's a good one. This is, this is John 3.16, sister verse. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You could spend so much time meditating on that. How is love shown? How do we know the definition of love? But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I promise I give you a preview of our Bible study this week. Turn to chapter eight with me. So we've seen how God's love is shown, that Christ died for us. Then what is the response of the believer? What should the believer take away from understanding God's love? Look at verse 38, chapter 8. For I am sure, no wavering, no uncertainty here, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, 
nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? If you ever feel discouraged, if you ever feel like God has forgotten about you or his love does not extend to what you are going through, remember this. Nothing, nothing in creation, because God created it, God controls it, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Uh, Back to John. So there's more explanation needed here. Because back in John chapter 3, we begin with four again in verse 17. So again, many people, in their, their Bibles stop at John 3.16. I love that. It's all positive, nothing bad. There's still darkness in the world. There's still sin. There's still a problem. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So this is a continuation of the love. This is more explanation of the love of God, is that God sent his son. God sent his son into the world to save it in order to give him up for salvation. The primary purpose of Jesus coming to this earth is to save the world. Who do we talk about is the world? The wickedness who hate him, and we'll, we'll see that in a moment. But those who will trust and believe in him. The ultimate purpose of Jesus Christ coming is to save them, and the means of him saving them is the cross. Why do we mention the cross all the time? Why do we sing songs about the blood of Jesus? Because without it, we are not saved. Without it, we are perished. Without it, we are condemned already. His judgment is assumed. We're going to see that in verse 18. Jesus came to save the world. His first coming is to save it. The Father sent him to save it. Once he died on the cross and rose again, the authority has been given to him all heaven and all earth as the the king of kings and lord of lords. He's going to come back the second time to judge the world in his own authority. He's not judging when the father sends him because in the the, the perfect time he comes back to judge in his own authority. We'll get to that in chapter five. Because salvation and, and, and judgment are two sides of the same coin. They're both accomplished through the son. And they're both in his power and perfectly done by him. And we're going to spend a lot of time on this in chapter 5. So in verse 18, we see, uh, or excuse me, verse 17, we see repeated three times the world. So there's this, this general uh, application to the world. Then it gets a little more specific in verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. What do we see repeated three times there? Belief. So we have contrasted, the, the, not contrasted, we've talked about the world generally, and then we get specifically to those who believe. Why are we not condemned? Because we believe in the name of Jesus Christ. Romans 8.1 tells us there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The condemnation is our, is our r- reminder that sin is still there, that condemnation is actually assumed. Judgment is assumed in the world because without the Savior, you're still in a state of of being cursed. This is important to understand. Because without the Savior coming to save, judgment is assumed. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. The condemnation is there. Without faith, we are in a state of condemnation. 
Without faith in Christ, without the blood of Christ, we have rejected God in every fiber of our being and we are condemned already. The condemnation is is on our heads. Until Christ. We're on death row. There's nothing we can do and there's we are waiting a pardon for the one who has the authority to forgive sins to forgive the just penalty that is on our head. And why are we not condemned? Because we believe in Christ. And why are they condemned? Verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? There's a lot of teaching words here. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. There is no salvation without faith. We saw last week that regeneration, the New life in the Holy Spirit precedes faith. The whole conversation is you must be born again first. And then belief comes out of that. And with belief comes salvation. Otherwise, there is condemnation. Everybody tracking with me here? This is essential to the gospel. This is essential to our understanding of the gospel and our explanation of the gospel. You must be born again. You must believe. We call all the nations to repentance. We call all the nations To believe in Jesus Christ and those who were born again with eyes to see and ears to hear will trust and believe in him. And as believers, do we know that there is no condemnation in Jesus? I know we we love these these bumper sticker verses, Romans 8.1 and John 3.16. But do we know, in, in a heart of hearts, do we know that there is no condemnation in Jesus Christ? Or are we still putting ourselves on the cross every time we sin? Are we still condemning ourselves for falling short over and over again? Does these, do these passages bring us to encouragement and remembrance that Christ took our condemnation for us? And that we have been set free by his sacrifice. As believers, do we remind ourselves of this often? Because we should. Because it's easy to put ourselves in the place of Christ so often and try to make penance for our sins instead of responding in forgiveness and obedience the way that we should. Verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. The judgment is the divine verdict against the unbelieving world. We've come a long way from John 3.16. John, God so loved the world. There is a verdict against the world. The verdict is under judgment already. And this should... Make us think about John chapter 1, because we were just here a few weeks ago. The light of the world that comes into the world. Who is this light? Flip back one page to John chapter 1. Look at verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, and who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is not just illuminating light. This is Jesus Christ himself. This is the word became flesh. And what does this verse tell us? Verse 19 says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved darkness rather than light. This is a bold condemnation on the world. Because the world would love us to think that we're just all good and loving people. We're we're good down to our very soul, aren't we? Do we see that in this verse? We see that the world loves darkness more than the light. 
We know this instinctively. Every movie we've ever watched, every, every, every villain is always in, in darkness. There's no villains that love sunshine. You know, we always put the, the, the villains, you know, over in this category. Well, here's where the real evil, evil Lex Luthor, uh, Hitler, Charles Manson category is. Those are the ones who love darkness. But scripture goes a lot further than that. If you reject Christ, if you don't love him, you love darkness. And the reality is, is that there are a lot more people who love darkness than those who love light. This thing about darkness is darkness has no quality of its own. Darkness is not a thing. Darkness is just the absence of light. Because there, it, when, when light appears, dark doesn't go some, darkness doesn't go somewhere else. There is no darkness. Darkness is what covers or extinguishes the light. And I think for us, many times we assume that the darkness is just over there for the really wicked, really evil people. But darkness is anything that extinguishes the light or, or anything that draws our love away from the light to love something else. In our men's group, we're going through a series on heart idols. The dark things in our heart that draw our love away from the light. That draw our affections onto something that is other than Christ. Everyone loves something. For most people, it is darkness. And it is highly contrasted with the love of God that is sacrificial, that is loving, that is eternal. Not darkness that is self-focused. And how do we know it? Another teaching word here. Because their works were evil. They have proven it. God proved his love by his works. People prove their love, what they love, by their works. Sinning is attractive. It's fun for a moment, for a season. But it leads to darkness, spiritual and literal darkness. Four, more explanation. Okay, tell me more about these these works. What are these evil works? For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. So, John's going into more detail here. Not just do they love darkness, but they hate the light. The two are inseparable. Those who love darkness hate the light. How can anyone hate Christ? How can anyone hate the light of the world? How can anyone hate the God who has sent his son? They've been doing it from day one, and they will do it until he comes again. They put him on the cross. They hate the light. They hate Christ. This is not fun language. This this is not love that that, that the world wants to talk about. A God who loves in the midst of hate. This is another thing the world loves to talk about. What what, what hate is. You hate because you don't affirm. You hate because you don't agree with me. The hatred that they should be concerned about is hating the light. Hating the one who, who, who made them. Hating the one who will one day judge them. Who does the wicked deeds? Who are the wicked doers? The ones who reject Christ. They hate the light. They hate Christ. Because they know if they came to the light, their works would be exposed. They're like cave dwellers. I was thinking about this this, this week. And it's like if you've ever flipped over a uh, wet rotting log. You ever done that? And underneath it, there's worms and cockroaches and grubs and all kinds of creepy crawly things that love dark. 
And as soon as you flip it over, they just scatter. They want nothing to do with the light. This is what they're talking about here. Because when you're in the darkness for so long, you've been in a dark room for a long time, someone shines a light on you, the first thing you want to do is you want to cover your eyes and you want to hide because you're disrupting what's comfortable for me. And the world is comfortable in darkness. It does not want a light shine on it. It does not want to be exposed. When light is shined, all the darkness will be exposed and will have nowhere to go. Because darkness is nothing to begin with. And darkness will be nothing eventually. There will be no darkness when Christ comes the second time. And this darkness is a temporary thing. But it is in stark contrast to those who come to the light. And without Christ, you think you can get away with things. You think that no one knows what I do in secret. No one knows what I do in the darkness. But when your eyes are open, you come to this reality that everything is exposed before him. He knows all, and he knows the, 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 the dark things in our heart that, that we're still holding on to that are drawing our love away from Christ. And this is to be a challenge and an encouragement that the light is good. It is the same son who came to die for you. Because in him, there is no condemnation. Your judgment is not like the rest of the world, and you can... Confess what you are holding on to, what darkness is, is getting in between your relationship with, with, with him and lay it at his feet. And know that there is forgiveness. And know that nothing can separate you from his love. The love that existed for you before the creation of the world. Here's what is difficult for the world. Here's what will also challenge some people's Christianity. That God is light. God is love and in him is no darkness. Not only can no darkness be around him, but he hates it. He hates those workers of iniquity. That he can have no part with them. His love does not to, extend to those who hate him. Don't believe me? Let's turn to John chapter 1. Or excuse me, First John, forgive me. Um, that would make a difference. So 1 John is, is his letter, and, and he tells us about this, this love of God. This is at one time an encouragement to the believer and also a warning to the non-believer. First uh, John 1.5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That is the good news of the gospel and the reminder of the love of God, that through Jesus we are cleansed from all sin. And not only do we have fellowship with God, but with one another. We are united in the love of Christ. We are united by being recipients of God's grace and love and mercy to us. And when we were praying this morning before the service, uh, what came up many times was not forgetting God's love for us. Not forgetting how much he loves us. The depth 
of the gospel. Because again, this is Christianity 101. This is gospel 101. But are we encouraged by this? Do we remind ourselves of this over and over and over? And verse 21 is the, the final encouragement. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You can tell what kind of creature someone is by how they respond to the light. In Christ, we are creatures of light. And though we are not perfect and though we will stumble, we run to the light. And when you get used to the light, when the light is your encouragement, when the the light is, is your joy and your peace, and a little darkness creeps in. It may creep in for a moment, but you have to run back to the light. We're not those, those creatures that are under the log who want nothing to do with the light. Whoever does what is true comes to the light. Another teaching word here. So that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In God, the sovereign creator of all things. The God who loves us and made us and sent his son for us. There is an inseparable connection here. Do you see this? with the love of God, belief in him and the good works that come out of it. And this is the mark of someone who is born again. This, this uh, ties up Jesus' teaching here. Belief in the only Son of God and good works that come out of that. And that is not possible for darkness. So I want to conclude very quickly to answer Nicodemus' question, how is one born again? By the love of God sending his son to give us new birth in the spirit so that we can believe and be saved and live pleasing lives to God in the light of Christ. That is how one is born again. I just want to close with these words from Isaiah 45. I love the book of Isaiah. I keep going back to it over and over and over again. All of these great proclamations from the Lord. Isaiah 45 says this, starting in verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against me. And in the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be glorified, excuse me, shall be justified and shall glory. Let's pray. Lord, remind us that in you we are justified and we glory and we rejoice in your love for us. The sobering reality that you love us, that you love us so much. You've loved us before time began, and you will love us for eternity because of your son. Because you gave him sacrificially for us so that we might believe in his name and be saved and never perish. Lord, let us be people who are marked by the light. Let us be people who run from darkness, who who find our joy and our rest in you, who are encouraged by your love for us, who are so rooted in the truth of the gospel that it changes everything about us and it is the sweet honey that is always on our lips.
Lord, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the truth of the gospel. And thank you for the encouragement that we have fellowship together in Christ Jesus because we are loved by you so that we can love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.